This is Dr. Brenda Egan Johnson, and you are listening to the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Welcome to the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast, hosted by me, Dr. Mark Halstead. I cover current hot topics and recent research in the world of the young athlete relevant to healthcare professionals. This is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. COVID-19, it's August 2020. Months ago, I think we were all hopeful that the virus would be something of the past, but it didn't go away. Obviously, we could debate all of the reasons why that may be, but here we are. The summer's nearly passed us by and fall sports practices, for some, are now upon us. Sports at the youth level have been going on in parts of the country for several months. The NHL and NBA have restarted in their bubbles with relative success so far. Major League Baseball, different story with the local St. Louis Cardinals missing over a week of baseball now. Other teams having to sit in the Miami Marlins, having to sit out and now amazingly on a winning streak with a reshuffled lineup. As of August 8th, the first Power 5 conference, the MAC, announced it was canceling fall sports. Division 2 and Division 3 have canceled fall sports championships. The Big 10 announced it was pausing advancing on football workouts. So where do we go from here with sports? Sometimes they seem trivial in the big picture of things right now, but there are many things about sports that certainly all the guests on my pod today long for. We'll touch on where we've come over the last several months, where we are, and speculate about where we go from here. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and this is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. I'm joined today by four guests, three of whom we've had on the pod in the past. Dr. Jason Newland is a pediatric infectious disease specialist at St. Louis Children's Hospital and a member of the St. Louis Sports Medicine COVID-19 Task Force and has been tirelessly available as a consultant around our region regarding sports and the virus. Katie Smith is an athletic trainer who is currently the sports medicine outreach manager for SSM Health in St. Louis and the regional manager for Sports Care USA. She helped create the St. Louis Sports Medicine COVID-19 Task Force and has been a constant voice in our St. Louis effort. Dr. Jonathan Kim is a sports cardiologist at Emory University. He is a member of the NBA Cardiac Advisory Committee and the American College of Cardiology Sports and Exercise Council. And Dr. Andy Peterson is a sports medicine physician and head team physician for the Iowa Hawkeyes and has seen a large chunk of his normal practice carved out to manage COVID-19 planning and management at the University of Iowa. Welcome, everybody, to the podcast. So I'd like to start with Jason. Can you give us kind of a brief summary of where things stand with the virus now with kids? We are certainly seeing reports with schools opening up of kids testing positive and outbreaks at camps, proms, graduation parties, float trips. What do we know? And feel free to touch on sports as well as what we may know for transmission. I think all of us were hoping that children would be back and doing their normal activities by this point, but we've learned otherwise based on many factors. The kids have also not been able to do things, but starting in July, at least in our region, and many would say across the country, we started seeing increases in cases, and a lot of these cases were arising in this 10 to 19-year-of-age group. Whether that, what that was from was likely a lot of congregating and them getting together, um, and we've continued in some respects seeing that, though it seems to maybe leveled off in our own community in regards to that. Now, when you look into the younger age groups, so those less than 10, and even when we look at our own data, less than 12, 13, the cases are minimal. Now, if we want to talk about the virus in children and what we have learned, we still continue to see that children seem to be less likely to transmit it if you're less than 10. And if you're over than 10, so 10 to 19, which I would argue is likely going to be more those that are in their teenage years, they're transmitting the virus as efficiently as adults. Now, that's from 
household contact study. So you look at a household and see who the index case is. And often you're going to see that the transmission is the same from children and the teenager age to adults. I'd just like to end this point with just one other thing is that if we look at household contacts, the primary reason that we see children being infected is usually the adults. Over 80% of the time in a household, it starts with an adult and then it and goes to a child. In the St. Louis region, we have seen a study that we're working on that suggests that out of 59 households, only three began with a child being sick first. So with that being said, I think there is opportunities for children to do more. However, there is a group of children, our teenagers, those who would be in high school sports, that likely get the virus and transmit the virus just like an adult, which I think poses a lot of challenges that we'll talk about today. John, we discussed on a previous pod episode about the cardiac concerns for athletes. We've seen Red Sox player Eduardo Rodriguez dealing with myocarditis following his COVID infection. There were reports just the other day of a former Florida State University basketball player, a center who collapsed and died while training in Serbia. We don't know, obviously, if COVID had a role in this, but apparently it was confirmed that he had been diagnosed with COVID, although not exactly clear how long ago. Do we know anything more than a few months ago when we talked about this, about athletes and their cardiac risks following COVID? Well, first, I just want to thank you again, Mark, for the invitation to be on this podcast. It's a real honor. It's great to be a part of this esteemed group and get to know other experts in their fields. To get back to your question, we've learned a little bit more. You know, it's only been a couple months since our last podcast. And uh, you recall at the time we discussed quite a bit about our ACC-sponsored recommendations uh, that I was uh, lucky enough to be part of the author group as it relates to return to play. And at that time, it was, we have no data. We were basing this all on sicker hospitalized patients and the predilection for cardiac injury. Certainly, we still don't have published data as it relates to what we're seeing among athletic individuals. But we have had this case as it relates to Eduardo Rodriguez. And I'd just like to caution, of course, as you already mentioned, as it relates to the former Florida State basketball player, that we have no idea if, if COVID was at any real causal event. So uh, it's important to acknowledge that. Now, we do have some data, though, looking at, again, patients in the general population. And probably the most important study was published within the last 10 to 14 days. This is a study from Germany, and they looked at 100 patients post-COVID infection. What was, I guess you could say, scary about this study was the fact that of the 100 patients enrolled, a little bit over two-thirds fell into the category of being either asymptomatic or mildly ill. And what they found was that about 60% of this group, the overall group, showed evidence of cardiac inflammation by cardiac MRI roughly about 70 days or so after the time point where they were diagnosed with COVID. So, of course, that opened up a lot of eyes, not just for cardiologists in general, but certainly all of us on the sports cardiology side. Now, again, just to put a little caution into this, number one, these were older patients. They were about 50 on average. So these were not athletes. And I believe around 20% or so had underlying comorbidities, which is also important to acknowledge. And I think what's critical, what was most critical when I took away from the study was the fact that again, a large percentage were still having symptoms. So these were not folks that were out and about training for marathons because they felt great again. They were having ongoing symptoms. So what I take away from this as it relates to athletes in terms of do we know anything more is, to me, it really affirms that we were on the right thought path as it relates to taking this seriously for our athletic patients. 
certainly I would not say that this MRI study means we need to MRI every single athlete. I think there's some there's certainly some issues as it relates to if we were to mandate that. It's probably not the right thing to do. We still need more data, but taking it seriously with the screening that we the screenings that we recommended, I think those data and the fact that we have a very high profile athlete, so of course we're obviously not violating HIPAA with Mr. Rodriguez having myocarditis tells us that you don't have to be that sick to have potential cardiac involvement. And that's, uh, again, very important. So moving forward, I think it continues to emphasize the fact that we need to accrue the data that we're all obtaining. All of, of course, our collegiate and professional athletes are getting screened. They're going through various return-to-play COVID protocols. And it's going to be really important to look at that. Anecdotally, you hear about certain cases here or there from some of your colleagues, but again, nothing published. But I think all in all, what I'm, what we're learning is that the fact again that we've taken this as seriously as we have uh, was the right uh, was the right thought. Andy, I know when we talked last time, you were kind of explaining that there was going to be some pretty significant protocols you were going to be following at University of Iowa with, with regards to cardiac screening. Do you have any? Uh, how have things been going for you at uh, Iowa? Yeah, they've gone pretty smooth. So we've had 44 total positives at this point. We've done 950 tests. We're looking at about a 5% positivity rate, which is similar to the general population here in Iowa City. Uh, We've had 19 that have fully returned and gone through their post-COVID cardiac screening. And for us, that's an echo ECG and a troponin. All of them had normal troponins and ECGs. One person had an unrelated abnormality on their echo ended up getting a cardiac MRI and didn't have any evidence of cardiac inflammation. And then we had two others that just had trivial pericardial effusions on their echoes. So we're not seeing a lot of cardiac involvement so far here. But again, our N is reasonably small, having only had 19 go through their post-COVID cardiac screening. That said, our experience at Iowa is maybe a bit different from what other schools in the Big Ten have seen. Some of this has been publicized. But in response to the article that Dr. Kim just mentioned, several schools started doing cardiac MRIs as part of their return to sport protocol, and they are finding fairly high rates of cardiac inflammation on cardiac MRI. So these are people that did not have findings on their uh, enzymes, their um, ECG or their echo, um, but have cardiac muscular involvement on their cardiac MRI. What we don't know is how clinically significant this is. Um, Here at Iowa, we're working under the impression that uh, people with this kind of subclinical myocarditis that's not evident on their other studies are probably low risk for arrhythmia. Um, You know, we we are able to document pretty normal function on their echo. And so really the arrhythmogenesis of this or arrhythmogenicity of this is the concern. And we're working under the impression that the ones that are sliding under our radar are probably not clinically significant, but no one really knows the answer to that question. So if I could just quickly jump back in, uh, those are really important points, uh, Andy, but I, I think one of the most important takeaways for anybody listening to this podcast is, and, and this is something that on the healthcare side we're all familiar with, is we have to be really careful with some of these clinically significant unknown findings. I have as well heard of, of some schools who are including cardiac MRI as a part of their risk stratification protocol. And I'm certainly not here to say that's the wrong thing to do. But I also think it's important just to caution when you take into account this one study, which again, may not be the exact population that you're interested in with some of these anecdotal stories of abnormalities that are picked up on on cardiac MRs and otherwise asymptomatic now individuals who had normal 
prior studies. Now, we don't know what that means. And sometimes that does open up a can of worms that can make the situation that much more difficult and challenging. So certainly not trying to discount evidence of cardiac inflammation, abnormal findings by cardiac MRI. But I just think we have to be a little bit cautious. You know, we're, we're a society where that when we hear of abnormal things, we tend to try to address it as quickly as possible. And sometimes when you don't know what that means, you can get kids stuck into these situations, which are really unfortunate where they're not playing. And there's all these other downstream consequences that we've talked about when you talk about overscreening in general. And that still is an important pushback, I think, for the idea that we need to keep adding on study after study to try to pick up some of these potential abnormalities. Time will tell ultimately what the right screening protocol is, but we just need to be careful with all of these different findings that we're hearing about uh, at present. I will just jump in real quick. From an infectious diseases standpoint, it is intriguing that all of a sudden we start doing you know, some tests on a due to this virus because we're all focused on it. And it makes me curious that if we were doing cardiac MRIs on other viral type illnesses, such as let's take summertime enteroviruses, which we all know can cause in myocarditis and can give you a febrile illness, what would that look like? Or let's take influenza in the winter. Would that have some cardiac inflammation seen on an MRI and that we've never seen before? So it's an interesting kind of dilemma as we go forward and, and see. Jason, that uh, it's awesome you brought that up. I actually had that exact same point in various conversations with colleagues of mine. We're taking this very seriously. Certainly that MRI study that we talked about, as I mentioned, was extremely eye-opening. But it's, uh, I'm glad I'm on the same uh, wavelength with an infectious disease expert because I asked that exact same question just the other day to a colleague of, you know, what if we car- got cardiac MRIs on every single or a large cohort of patients post bad influenza where they had fever, they were sick for 10, you know, a week or so and they were home? To my knowledge, that study's never been done. How often would you find nonspecific inflammation and all these various findings? And we all know somebody, an athlete has the flu, once they are better, they just get back to training. There may be a little bit of a ramp up just for loss of conditioning, but there's certainly no cardiac risk stratification. So that's a really important point that you just raised. This is sports medicine in a nutshell is all the nuances of all, you can start doing more and more tests and you'll find more and more things. And then what do you do with them? And it all comes back to looking at the patient, right? And uh, what's going on exactly with the patient at that time. And I think great discussion, great discussion. Katie, Athletic trainers, they may be our new front line of defense when we think about this, when we go into sports uh, this fall, hopefully, uh, happening at multiple levels. Uh, ATs have played a crucial role as many were put into new roles as screeners during the shutdowns since they didn't have as much to do from a sports standpoint. Now they're instrumental in coming up with plans. I know you have been for us in St. Louis to help mitigate the spread. What challenges do you see athletic trainers facing in the upcoming months? Well, thanks so much again for uh, allowing me to join this group. You know, I think that there's a variety of different challenges that that athletic trainers at all levels, whether it be, you know, from the pediatric standpoint, the high school standpoint, the collegiate, even the professional sort of model. You know, I think in most settings, the athletic trainer is very unique in that most times they're kind of the primary healthcare provider from a day-to-day standpoint. And so when we looked at sort of returning to some sense of normalcy, we are, are really trying to identify what this new normal is going to look like. So we can make every policy and procedure out there, but the athletic trainer is really the person that's going to make this happen day to day. And they're going to be the primary contact person for these coaches and these teams. I think the advantage is, is that while athletic trainers are, are certainly not used to dealing with COVID by any stretch, 
we're really trained to understand risk uh, and assess risk and try to mitigate that in every sense, right? Uh, whether it be injury or other illness for these student athletes. So I think the role fits very well for sort of this COVID response, but I think these athletic trainers are taking on a lot and they're having to come up with very innovative solutions to mitigate this risk and sort of find this new normal. I think we all know the athletic population is is challenging to deal with in the sense that, you know, they constantly want more, right? We want to get back to the sense of normal, but it, it's sort of with what, what risk. And I think that's what mostly the, these athletic trainers are dealing with is how do we find the common ground between the reality is, is, is risk is going to exist no matter what we do ultimately. But what do we do to, to mitigate that and, and find ways that we can get these student athletes back to some sense of normal. So I think they're going to have a lot of challenges as we we head back into the semester. Many of them, unfortunately, you know, have not been working for several months for either furloughed or potentially been laid off during the last several months when, when COVID was sort of peaking and are now kind of being asked to, to jump in and, and run the show. I think that that's challenging, but I, I think they're excited to get back into this environment and help their student athletes find sort of their place again, sort of in this athletic environment. Andy, the Big Ten yesterday, and we're August 9th recording this podcast, uh, they decided to postpone moving forward with football practices, keeping them in an acclimatization phase. The MAC postponed all fall sports yesterday, the first of the Power Five conferences to cancel their sports. And many Division Two and Division Three schools have now canceled or postponed fall sports, leading both divisions now announcing this past week that they would cancel their fall championships where do you think we're heading with this uh, fall for collegiate sports? Yeah, it's tricky. And if I had a crystal ball, I'd definitely use it at this point. You know, the, the decision this week was um, not a decision taken lightly within the Big Ten. Um, you know, we started practices on Friday. They look like a typical first day practice, you know, helmets, no pads in this acclimatization phase. During the week, Commissioner Warren had hosted several meetings two very long meetings with our medical group, each two hours in length, where we went through the specifics at each one of our schools. He's been meeting with the athletic directors and the college presidents, as well as his own emerging infectious disease task force very, very frequently. And so a lot of a lot of work was made, it was put into making this decision yesterday. And just to be clear, we're not really pausing fall sports at this stage. We're staying in this uh, climatization phase. So, you know, we're day three of practice here. That would usually add um, you know, shoulder pads and start having some FUD type contact. And we're not doing that. So we're staying in helmets only and um, continuing non-contact practices. Uh, but it looks a lot like practice. You know, yes, yesterday looked an awful lot like day two of practice, even though the new statement from the Big Ten had come out the day before or come out earlier in the day. And so, you know, I, it's hard to know what this is going to look like moving forward. Uh, right now, we're kind of in the buying buying time phase. I don't think anybody wants to pull the plug on the season unless there's pretty good reason to do so. You know, one of the big challenges across the Big Ten is heterogeneity in available resources and infrastructure. So here at Iowa, we're remarkably fortunate. We've got high-quality NPPCR available with a six- to eight-hour turnaround time. Uh, we've trained an additional uh, half-dozen people to be contact tracers. So we use supplemental contact tracing on top of what local public health is doing. We um, have very robust buildings, procedures, protective equipment, those types of things. So we're in reasonably good shape. But I can't say that about all my colleagues across the Big Ten. Some of them are really struggling with testing access and contact tracing and local rules and regulations that limit gathering sizes. So um, some places are struggling. So I don't think this is going to be 
what we can do. It's going to be a matter of what's available at each, each institution. And if some schools aren't able to do this, you know, a decision will have to be made whether you continue to play with the schools that are able to or if you cancel the entire season across the conference. But it's a um, very, very challenging decision. So, Andy, just real quick, because I'm so curious, you mentioned you had a 5% positivity rate among your athletes. and you, uh, and, Athletes and staff, just to be clear and, here. So, and you know, staff, okay. Yeah. And, so, and you're doing contact tracing. So where are you finding that they're likely to pick it up, or are there many of I have no ideas? Yes, I was hoping to make this point. So the vast majority of these are community spread. We have six out of those 44 where we could plausibly say that the spread happened within our building, but the vast majority of these are happening in the community. And anecdotally across the Big Ten, that's what everyone else is seeing as well, that uh, we can mitigate some of these risks within our facilities, but we're really challenging to um, control spread outside of the buildings. Most of us are seeing positivity rates very similar to what is seen in our local communities. And Andy, just to follow up on that, too, just from uh, my curiosity, you know, I know that the Big Ten was, I, I think it was requiring masks for the athletes while they participate, Correct. Correct. So, and I, you know, I've seen this certainly on pictures on social media of soccer players practicing and participating with their masks on at Wisconsin, just uh, following up at the alma mater and certainly seeing that from a football standpoint of pictures from practice. Have you had any feedback from the athletes? Because obviously this is always a big concern and a big complaint of people is that, oh, we can't exercise with a mask on and, and any feedback from the athletes of what they feel their, their ability to participate with the mask on is? It has gotten dramatically better. Um, I think this is a lot of like a lot of things in life. You kind of figure out how to live with it. So day one, lots of complaints, reasonably poor compliance. Day two, better compliance. People are getting used to it. Day three, people are using them pretty regularly. And now, you know, I was out of practice for almost the whole thing yesterday, and I don't know. I saw maybe one person who had taken their mask off for a moment. Like the vast majority of people are wearing their mask all the time. Uh, when we're helmeted, we're using a helmet add-on, so it's not like a typical cloth or surgical face mask. It's um, an add-on to the helmet, so that uh, presents its own set of challenges. But again, compliance with that has been been very good as well. I think most people are freaking out based on how people respond to these things on the first day of practice and conditioning with those masks on, but people seem to tolerate them pretty quickly, and you know, it's just like anything, you can learn to live with it. This is a question for anybody here, and feel free to chime in, but what do any of you think this means for the prospect of fall sports for our high school and younger athletes? And and already, I mean, we've seen dramatic differences around the country as far as what's happening. Some states have already canceled their fall sports. Some states have postponed certain sports. Some states have just delayed the start of sports. You know, in Missouri, and I think also for you in Iowa, Andy, that we're holding steady. We're at least trying to give high school sports a try here and hoping that things move forward and obviously knowing that there are going to be some some stumbling blocks along the way, but we have the approach that we want to at least give it a try if it's possible. What, what does anybody think? Yeah, I've been thinking about this a lot. I think there's two ways to look at that problem. So you know, the first is that the high schools and lower levels tend to follow what's happening at the higher levels. So it's not uncommon for you know, the NFL or NCAA to make a decision about health and safety and for that to trickle down eventually to the high schools. These things happen quite a bit. The other side of that coin, however, is that our risk tolerance at the college level, I think is lower than what most people would say happens at the high school level, mainly because of optics. And I think the stories you started with today illustrate that well, right? You know, we know about the Red Sox player who uh, has myocarditis. Everyone knows about the Indiana uh, football player that has myocarditis. But boy, I'm sure there's 
tens, if not hundreds of high school kids that have had myocarditis and either they weren't picked up or it just hasn't made the news. And so the optics change a little bit. We get crucified in the press if someone gets sick in a way that could have been prevented. And that same type of thing just doesn't seem to happen at the high school level. It's not national news. It's not a multi-day story. And so our risk tolerance for something that could have been prevented seems to be a little bit higher at the higher levels. And that may be the case, Andy, but you know, I'm certainly we're seeing with schools reopening places, there are people getting crucified right now as far as what's what's happening with positive cases happening in school. The perfect example is the the Georgia school that opened and had uh, the student who posted the pictures of the relatively little masking going on. And now I think there's nine people total, six students, and I think three staffers who've tested positive in this first week already at that school. So I think we're seeing that. Egregious. I just don't think, you know, we haven't seen high school sports really rev up yet. Yeah, but that's for egregious error. You know, the, the, the tricky part here is, you know, if we're playing college sports and seeing the same rates of positivity as it's in the general population, the story isn't that we're seeing the same rates as the Iowa City community. The story is that Iowa football has had 44 people test positive over the last three months, right? You know, it, it, there's not a lot of room for nuance on these things. And as long as we're not making egregious errors, we're not going to get hit for those. What we're going to get hit for is people actually getting sick. And I think that's unavoidable. You know, that's just the nature of having students on campus, returning to the classroom, then congregating in the community. We're going to have people get sick. You brought up Georgia, and I was actually going to bring that up as well. And I'll tell you, our state, we have you know, a lot of concerns as it relates to our high school students and athletes being kind of the super spreaders, if you will, throughout the state. I think it's already, frankly, happening as the Georgia High School Association allowed football practices to begin up in June. That was, we talked about that on our, on our last podcast and kind of hearing the practices that many of these high schools are, uh, and to no fault of their own, again, they just don't have the resources. It's clearly not an effective means of trying to reduce spread. And I think they're certainly a big part of the community spread that we see here uh, in the state. And that picture that everybody's seen certainly highlights that. So, uh, you know, as Andy mentioned, we'll, we'll obviously see as well. I mean, there are not as many publicized cases of student or athletes, high school athletes, uh, testing positive for COVID. You do see some media reports. I, I've seen one of a young man who played football and both his parents, unfortunately, uh, they all three got COVID and his parents both died. This was on a, a mainstream news network and the young man was interviewed. And Again, it just raises questions about where that COVID was spreading from in terms of how it got to that specific family. I'm sure we'll all be surprised if sports are able to kind of proceed as planned throughout the fall. And uh, I do agree with the point that the high school level tends to follow what's going on at the levels above them. And um, we'll see exactly how it plays out across the country. So, John, back to you again. So we know major organizations, the AAP, and then obviously the currently published recommended cardiac guidelines that you were involved with suggest a minimum of 14 days from the onset of symptoms before consideration should begin before return to play progressions. The CDC's come out over the last, I believe, month or so suggesting that 10 days since the onset of symptoms may be okay for things like returning to work. And we know that obviously just returning to a work setting is a little different than athletics. Has there any been any discussion from the cardiac standpoint that we may be able to consider the 10 days? Because I know that's been a big discussion topic here in Missouri with local health departments since we have 14 days considering the CDC's change, or should we really be staying more conservative with the athlete? 
Yeah, great question. And certainly when we put out our recommendations in May, we knew that there would be rapid evolution with data as well as CDC being able to guide and provide information. And the 10 days comes from the fact that they believe that risk or being infective or infection at that level is now low in terms of somebody actually being infected and being able to spread it and being infected themselves. And the 14 days that we came up with were obviously based on CDC guidelines at the time, concern for public health, as well as the concern that patients can become sicker within uh, during that second week. Given these recommendations, though, I do think it's reasonable to follow CDC's lead with this. And I've certainly have instructed the teams that I consult for and work with that it's reasonable to drop that 14 days down to 10 days. And I think many of the leagues, certainly the National Football League, as they came out with their COVID return to play guidelines, utilized the 10 days per CDC. As the leagues switch over to new years, such as the National Basketball Association, I suspect that will be a change. We said 14 days for the NBA to coincide with CDC and our recommendations. They're going to stay with that as uh, for obvious reasons, just too difficult to change things up relatively that that quickly. But I think overall, 10 days is reasonable, and it's not necessarily a additional concern from a cardiac standpoint. Because again, if we're going to say you're not infective, then that takes away much of the reason why we said 14 days in the first place. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll continue our discussion on the coronavirus. Thought about a career in voiceover? Need a great, cost-effective on-hold message for your organization or business? Don't know where to start? Check out The Voice Farm, your one-stop shop for voiceover needs. Check it out now by accessing The Voice Farm at voicefarmers.com and see what difference can be made with a company that is truly outside the box. From The Voice Box, voicefarmers.com. That's voicefarmers.com. Dr. Mark Halstead here. Do you like what you're hearing on the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast? If you want to learn how your business, organization, or effort can benefit from my focused audience of professionals interested in pediatric sports medicine, connect with us and let's have a conversation. You can reach out to us at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. Make your podcast soar with the Editor Corps. Editing podcasts can be, ugh, rough. Everyone knows that you'll spend at least double the time you use creating the podcast when editing it. Then there's the control freak factor and the gotta get it right the first time. Well, it's time to shove all that out the door and make your podcast soar with the Editor Core. The Editor Core is a talented, experienced team of podcast editors that have edited tens of thousands of hours of podcast content and they're ready for yours now. Check out EditorCore.com because it's time. To make your podcast soar, editorcore.com. That's editorcore.com. We're back and we've been discussing COVID 19 with my guests today and where we are with sports in August of 2020. Jason and Katie, feel free to chime in on this as well. Can you touch on some of the challenges that we faced here in St. Louis? I mean, the three of us know this very well. There was a lot of concern when our task force made some recommendations to actually roll back from our phase two of participation back to phase one. I'm sure there are similar concerns and issues others are dealing with around the country, especially those that may have canceled sports or postponing sorts. We're certainly not going to make the most popular decision all the time, a recommendation. 
And there are lots of others taking flack around the country from conferences shutting down, sports being canceled. Feel free to give insight of what we've kind of gone through here. I, I just want to first say that if you guys that are helping with the NBA or other college sports need help, just, you know, give me a call because that's pretty cool, by the way. Um, <laughs> um, but on the other side, I think this has been one of the hardest parts of this work. We came out as a group, Katie, Mark, and I, and others in our task force and said, look, we're seeing a significant increase occurring in July, really mid-July, early July, and said we had always had this notion that we were going to back off sports if the community saw a rise. And we weren't going to look if it was the kids or not the kids, but we thought that was the important right response in the middle of a public healthcare crisis occurring across the country. So we make this determination. And then what comes out is that people use that to say they blame it on the kids. And I think that sent many of us into kind of what would say anger. And I think this, this is what's, it, it's some of the political changes that have occurred and then not having other responses in addition to what's being done with youth sports. So you see the youth sports backing off, but they continue to leave bars open and other congregate facilities like the recreational trampoline parks, all these other things that can make money better. And that, and so you don't have a consistent response across industries when you're seeing a surge in your community. And I believe that this then drove a lot of frustration and anger toward our work because we were just trying to be responsible. And that, to me, has been really problematic. And I also believe working with health departments, while they are key and essential, we've struggled with this and how to do that together. And we're continuing to learn all the time, especially when you have five or six county health departments that make up a region with everywhere from the far left to the far right deciding which who should do what. So that's been my take. And Katie, you should definitely add to that because we've been in the, all of this together. Oh, for sure. I mean, I think those are, are great points. I think the uniqueness of, of dealing with a variety of different health departments has just caused such a, a variety of different problems, I think, for us, especially in, you know, we live in a region in St. Louis where we have a lot of different counties and municipalities that that are that border one another. And for us, we have a lot of athletes that go back and forth. And so I think what we saw created here is sort of uh, an unlevel playing field as far as how decisions were being made. You know, we, we sort of see, like you said, one extreme here and another extreme elsewhere. And, and it, it's very challenging, I think, for our community to understand why decisions are made. And I think that's been the challenge that we've seen is our group is really focused on on trying to make the right decisions for the population that we all work with, right? Which is that athletic population. I don't believe that our health departments have advocates in other areas that are unbiased like our group. Certainly we all are the biggest advocates of sports that you're going to find, but I think we're able to provide a, a pretty unbiased scientific opinion about what the right next step is. And, and I don't think other pieces are of our public health crisis have that. And so I think it then becomes sort of appeasing our community and, and that creates a lot of challenges but I, I do think it's interesting because I think when this first started, you know, the answer was we, we shut sports down. We just, we shut it down. We're going to stop. And then I think we all had to come to a point of realization that life has to continue on in some respect because COVID's not going away tomorrow. And so I think what we've all had to do is sit and say, how do we find 
the happy medium between that to allow kids to return to something, but how do we do it in a controlled manner? And that we have to realize that uh, of our population that we're working with, especially when you talk about the high school and collegiate side of things, a very high percentage of these people are involved in athletics of some kind, especially when you talk about the pediatric world. I mean, when we were sitting here looking at this, these age groups, when we look looked in St. Louis at the regional breakdown of these COVID cases and looked at in that 10 to 19 category, especially once we looked at that high school age range, you're talking about 60, 70% of these kids are are in sports of some kind, whether it be, you know, recreational or more competitive sport. And we have to realize that this has a major effect on sports, even if it's totally because of community spread. I think part of our job is to help provide that education as to how the spread's occurring and what overarching factors and then what factors within sports we have to change in order for that to be realistic to play. Because I think we all want them to play, but in what capacity, I think, is the question that we're all currently facing. And I'll just say trying to make guidances with all these different sports and, you know, I think it's been challenging, even just going high contact versus low contact and and football seems like just a completely different beast most days. And that has been, I think, very challenging. No doubt. I mean, I think we definitely can all agree that there are some sports that are going to lend themselves very well to still being something that can participate. And and that's, you know, again, I hope that we can be sensible around the country of making sure we're, we're thinking about that when we're going through all these recommendations. So Andy, do you think we can truly do sports at the collegiate level without the bubble concept that's present in the NHL or NBA, especially on a college campus? I know I, I'm encouraged from what you've told us already with your data and what's going on there in Iowa, but but what are your thoughts? I mean, it's really going to depend on our risk tolerance and public perception. I think there are things that we can do to mitigate some of this risk to keep us close to or you know, around the community prevalence rates, but if we're not going to tolerate any cases in athletics, then we can't do it. We're going to have cases, we're going to have games canceled, we're going to lose important personnel for certain contests. It's just inevitable if we play. And if we tolerate that, then we play sports. If we don't tolerate that, then we got to cancel. John, uh, Dr. Peter Dean and his colleagues published somewhat similar guidelines for clearing athletes back to play after COVID infection relative to the pediatric perspective. However, one thing that I found is an interesting comment in there is they suggested for younger patients and they classified those under the age of 12, their, their quote was, since the, their exertional level during sports is likely not significantly higher than their activities of daily living, we do not believe cardiac testing is required to clear them for physical activity or sports if their history and exam are reassuring. Now, I would argue that the exertional level for some of those kids 12 and under is pretty significant, probably a lot more than their activities of daily living, which we know for many under the age of 12 is sitting in front of a computer screen and playing a video game. But what are your thoughts about this uh, in general? And I, and I agree the history and exam, if there was a reassuring in that age group, probably also reassuring and they probably don't need any other cardiac testing. So I think that statement is probably correct. Yeah, I would agree. Uh, Dr. Dean and his colleagues wrote that piece for us for our ACC.org sports and exercise page. And certainly the way that one statement is worded, just reading it here and hearing you say it again, I, I think certainly you could just push back specifically about that comment. But as it relates to the testing part of that, I think we'd probably all agree. And and again, I won't belabor the uh, excellent points we already heard in the beginning from, from Jason as it rela- relates to COVID-19 in kids. But from a cardiac standpoint, the only thing that I would add is that we know that myocarditis is, is actually a pretty rare diagnosis in, in, in young kids. And so what we're most worried about as it relates to 
our older athletes is just not as common in, in the younger athletes. Now, there, I think kids have different other post-COVID complications, and I won't get into all of that just for the sake of time. But but I think that's part of the reason for me as it relates to why it's 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 not as necessary to do that for the points we heard about in the beginning, and then again the the overall rare nature of myocarditis in that population. Katie, a concern with sports being postponed or canceled around the country is employment of athletic trainers. If there aren't sports, they are a group most susceptible to layoffs. What are you hearing from colleagues in the NATA on that issue? Yeah, you know, this has been a, a very challenging time for the profession of athletic training. I think what we saw around the country was a lot of programs, specifically hospital-based and PT-based athletic training outreach programs in these communities a lot of them just eliminated them uh, and that eliminated athletic training coverage for, for very large sections of, of the United States. And I, I think that's, that's challenging because I, I certainly understand the financial crisis that many businesses, including hospitals and PT organizations are in right now in relation to COVID. But unfortunately now we're, we're back in the situation of we want a return of sports, but we removed the healthcare provider out of that. And, and I don't think it's realistic for these schools to manage the risks and the challenges that are going into having sports during this COVID crisis without an athletic trainer. I think that is crucial in order to understand how to get through this and also manage it. Because I think, as we tell all of our athletic trainers, it's not the question of if you're going to have positive COVID cases at your schools. It is a when you're going to have positive COVID cases. And that's at the high school level and the college level because that's the reality of what we're sitting in it. And those are the people that can help manage that because these schools are not prepared to deal with what's going to happen when we have positive cases and how we manage that, uh, because it is a large ability to manage quickly and appropriately in order to actually be able to continue to participate and have some sort of a season. And so I think it's challenging for a lot of these athletic trainers because Many of them have either lost their jobs or were furloughed for three or four months. And now it's kind of, okay, come back and fix this problem. And that's kind of an unfair solution, unfortunately. Uh, I think what we're hearing a lot from the NATA, though, is for these athletic trainers who are in a position where potentially there isn't going to be sports this fall or very limited, the encouragement we're getting from the national level is to utilize athletic trainer in some of these non-traditional ways because they have a unique skill set that's really helpful, especially in these places that have limited healthcare providers. And really they can be used. We're, we're encouraging our schools to have our athletic trainers be part of their COVID task force at these schools because they really can provide great insight, help managing these COVID patients, help with contact tracing and, and when to quarantine and when not to quarantine. They're really vital in managing this. And I think it's just important for these organizations to see that. I think on the flip side, while some organizations feel like it's an easy thing to cut, I think others are realizing the necessity of the athletic trainer, um, especially at the college level and the professional level. I mean, you've heard sort of these organizations sit and say, I don't know what we would do if we didn't have these people because they really are going to be the glue that kind of makes this work. So I think it's going to be a very challenging year, but I, I certainly think if we get the right advocates out there and making sure that we're employing these individuals and giving them the tools they need to be successful, I do think they're going to be the key in and sort of making this work. That may look a little bit different depending on what part of the country we're in and what resources we have, but I do think they'll, they'll be vital in, in making something happen. Katie's being very diplomatic here. I want to make it a little bit more pointed. 
So removing athletic trainers from the mix is remarkably misguided. Um, you know, I, in my role, I, I have a fair amount of power and control. I have the ego to think that I'm important, but I am not nearly as important as our lowest trained athletic trainer. What they do day to day with the health and safety of our athletes is dramatically more important than what I'm doing as a team physician. You know, I, I think it's it's interesting because I think a lot of people maybe didn't realize what the athletic trainer's purpose really was and, until everybody started to return to sports. And now it's, well, what are we supposed to do? Well, what are we supposed to do? And I think it, it's twofold. Not only is the athletic trainer trying to come up with a plan, but that's actually the easy part in my my opinion. Uh, and dealing with, I've, I have a staff of about 15 plus athletic trainers that I manage. It's the implementation that's the challenge. It's making this work every single day, not just coming up with a plan of what to do. That's the hard part. And I think that's really what everybody's walking into in these next couple of weeks is, you have to make this work every single day. That's going to be the challenge to get us through, you know, the semester and then through the school year, because this isn't just a tomorrow problem. This is a much larger problem. And so they're responsible for a complete culture change at, at these places. Uh, and that is not an easy task in the athletic world. So they have a, they have a, a big challenge to, to do just that piece. And I don't think the challenge of the plan was really was really the hard part. I think we're we're about to face that in the next month or so. So I feel like I keep piling on with Katie here, but the uh, the point here is an important one. You know, if you look if you look at pretty much all of the guidelines that have come out, they're fairly aspirational and thirty thousand foot views of this. Yeah, there's some granularity in, in some of them, but you know, the day to day operationalization of this is really up to the athletic trainers, right? They're the ones who have to make this work every day. Yeah, we can help them plan. Yeah, we can troubleshoot. But boy, they're the ones who are on the front line actually making this happen every day. And and I hope they get the credit if we do have some success with getting uh, sports happening this fall, no question. You know, we've talked a lot about whether we think sports may or may not happen. And obviously, that's a lot of speculation for all of us. We know some things that have already been done, and that's the moving of seasons. And we've seen this done or proposed at the collegiate level. We've seen it done at high schools, either, again, delaying or sometimes moving the schedule around completely. You know, our neighboring state here from Missouri and Illinois has moved football to February, and we can have all sorts of arguments of what that may mean in the northern parts of the state, playing football in February outdoors. I have some really significant concerns and there's definitely some conflicts that I think we need to talk about with this. You know, there's club teams. And again, I'm not going to defend club teams and, and their approach to this, but there are definitely now going to be some conflicts of what's traditionally a club team season that now may be a high school team season. I'm concerned about injuries. I'm concerned about now for football, a cumulative year of going from spring football to summer workouts and football there, and then now to fall with football again uh, in 2021. Any of you have concerns about these switches that are being made? Uh, and we don't even know what's obviously going to happen in January. There's big assumptions being made here with these switches that everything's going to be hunky-dory in January. Uh, maybe I'll start with this. So you know, our, our take on this when we were bringing some of our sports back was that it was less risky to have them in our buildings and in our environment than it was to have them out in the community. I, I think I can take wrestling as an example. You know, people, when everything was shut down, people were still getting together to wrestle. I mean, you couldn't even buy a home practice mat anymore because Resolite was completely sold out of all of them because everyone had set up a wrestling area in their garage or their barn or their basement or, or whatever. So to think that canceling a sport was going to keep kids from congregating or playing sports together or doing other active things together, I, I think is fantasy. I, I can't imagine that we're going to really keep people apart and keep them from doing physical things together. 
One topic that brought up is the mental health of our kids and all of this. You know, I know in my own household, I've seen the stress and toll this has taken on each of my three kids, all of whom are involved in various extracurriculars that have been sacrificed back in the spring. And then, you know, potentially talk about that for the fall to them specifically involved in sports and my wife being a coach for high school sports as well. It's affecting her as well. We know the benefit of sport on mental health, but that's only one piece of overall mental health. Obviously, you know, we see the mental health toll on athletes who only see themselves as an athlete with no other identity. And I think that's uh, created a toll for some athletes as well as we see with injuries for them uh, and not being able to participate and they have nothing else to fall back on. How much should we be pushing for sports or should it be that we push for physical activity, especially if competition happens, that's a considered a bonus? You know, this has been probably, you know, coming from the infectious disease perspective and this public health perspective, you know, my feeling has been my my place in this world has been to really talk the virus and understand the virus. But that calculus is is false, right? If we really all wanted to focus on the, the virus, then we would be shut down already and we would wait until we got hardly any cases and then we could find them and, and go from there. And we, we know that there's a negative consequences of that, which you just highlighted very well. If we then look at the data that we're that we continue to look and even listen to Andy talk about the very beginning with their contact tracings, it's it's in the community. It's the things that are being done outside of the sports arena that we're seeing. And and so far that's what we've seen here. And I think we're I've been on the side of I don't want to find it in sports, but again, as Andy mentioned, it's probably crazy to think we're not going to have at least one case come in. But if we don't have cases during the run of play or during things or at that point in time, are how do we do this to where we can still have some sports and some organized sports because of the the other benefits? I mean, we we're struggling with this in our own community where we have different health departments taking different views on le- allowing kids to play sports. And, I, you know, that's that's getting it's, it's a struggle. And I think that's probably what keeps me up at night. That keeps my brain running the whole time when I'm actually out for my daily runs. And where is that going to go? And how do we continue to remember that there's other important benefits of, of being in sports? I would say one of the unfortunate things here is that the only data we have on this is from elite athletes. So there um, have been studied surveys of Olympic caliber, you know, national caliber athletes, and they're showing worse mental health through the pandemic than they had at baseline. You know, anecdotally here at Iowa, we do a a screener called a CCAP screener, um, which is a general screen of um, depression and anxiety. Uh, And we've been doing that weekly through the pandemic. We were doing it intermittently before that. And our athletes that had not returned to campus were actually showing slightly better than baseline mental health. Yeah, there's some outliers, people that have been struggling. But then as athletes returned to campus and their sports ramped up again, we actually saw a fairly precipitous decline in their mental health. So the stress of returning to sport with um, everything around it has seemed to have been more challenging. Again, that's one institution and um, probably not generalizable, but it's what we're seeing here. I think that's a good point, though. I think that the college athlete in particular is dealing with a variety of different stressors with this, right? I mean, everything from, you know, my, my husband's a college coach and he was a, he coaches women's lacrosse and, and his season was canceled, basically. I mean, they had to deal with a lot of the struggles of, you know, whether or not their seniors were going to try to come back for another year, if they're going to be able to play this year. I think they have a different stressors this year than they previously did. So I can certainly see a, a change in in the mental health piece as they do get back to campus. But I, I do argue that I, I think there is a certain amount of activity and 
and team activity in particular that we can offer at both the high school and collegiate level, that's still very controlled and, and low risk. And I think that's important to try to navigate those waters to find what we can let them do, whether that be individual workouts or even small group workouts that are controlled and outside where that risk is low. I think that there's still a lot that can be done. And I I constantly have been and telling your coaches and, and even my husband, this is we're, we're going to have to find a way to be creative in this. I think we just have to get over the fact that these sports are not going to look like they normally do it. And I think once we get over that fact and realize that we're going to have to find creative ways to engage these kids and keep them busy as well. Um, because I think if we know that the, the risk is really community spread and these other activities by shutting everything down and saying they can't do anything, they're just going to go do these other activities. We know that about college age kid behavior, right? They're, they're going to go to the bars. They're going to have house parties. They're going to do all these other things that they're going to spread it. So why not get them in these environments that are controlled and really lower risk and keep them engaged in that for the mental health piece. And I think that that really that control is is much lower risk than some of these other things. But I think it's going to take a lot of creativity to do it and a complete culture change in order to effectively do it. You know, as we get to wrapping things up here, I'm going to go around the around the horn here, so to speak. And a couple things. We know that messaging is key. We're all intimately involved in various aspects of this with relation to sports and I'd love to hear from each of you just in general, what do you think we need to be doing as far as messaging better? Because obviously that's been a big concern during this whole pandemic is our messaging. But what can we do better for each of us messaging to our athletes, to our coaches, to our administrators, and any final parting comments that you may have? And we'll start with John. Well, again, uh, thank you so much for organizing another uh, podcast to uh, continue to talk about COVID-19. Uh, we all have COVID-19 fatigue uh, for sure, but uh, unfortunately we're all stuck living with it and it, it impacts all of what we do on a day-to-day -day basis. I'll start with just kind of the, the parting comment. Um, I think we've done a great job. This has been a phenomenal discussion to build on the, the first podcast I was a part of. And from a sports cardiology standpoint, just the one kind of parting message I think I would say would be that it's a, it just amazes me how this infection is really going to intertwine itself with everything that I do and worry about for years to come. And what I mean by that is I used to worry about the pre-participation evaluation as it relates to underlying genetic cardiomyopathies and arrhythmic syndromes. And worry of underlying COVID is, is going to be a part of that. And it'll be very interesting as it relates to the coming years about how we involve that as COVID-19 essentially just becomes ingrained in, in society. Even for things, and this is going to sound quite morbid, but it's really important. So when we think about sudden death in athletes, athletes who ultimately develop myocarditis don't necessarily have to have sudden arrest or death within the first couple months after they get the disease. There can be scarring. It can be a longstanding issue. And over the next two to three years, um, or one to two to three years, I think we'll really begin to see the impact, specifically as it relates to right now with you know, we obviously don't know all the, the right things to do, and athletes are asymptomatic, they may be mildly ill, and they're participating, and we just don't know, uh, number one, how to best screen for, but what this is going to mean, mean down the road. And so I think it's very scary. We're all trying to do the best we can right now, but it's just important to recognize that this is definitely not going anywhere. I think we all understand that. And something I grapple with every day and worry about every day. As it relates to the, the messaging, 
from the, I think, again, not to get political, but, but it really starts from the top. I mean, I think it, you have to rely on your national leaders. And we, again, without going into the politics, we all know that the messaging is, is kind of all over the place. From our standpoint, as it relates to sports medicine and the athletes that we work with, it's really just trying to be available. And I try to counsel every athlete that I deal with for a return to play basis and, and try to go through some of the concerns, some of the questions. You know, a lot of athletes don't necessarily have questions. They just want to get back to practice and participate, but at least try to go through some, some of the concerns that we have and, and the importance of the public health measures that they're going to need to really follow and, and be involved with you know, as they, as, as they move on and get back to, 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 to training. And so I try to do my part, but again, I think, uh, that question is really much a, uh, uh, it's a much larger question as it relates to what we could just be doing better as a society as a whole. Jason, we have to band together as a community to, um, message the fact that our act, our actions impact our, our children and what they need to, and should be in. Um, and that includes sports, and I think that includes even the collegiate sports. Uh, anything that we're doing outside as a community will impact during this time. We can't have it all. We can't have our bars open and, and still think we're going to be able to do youth sports as, as they are. So my big thing has been to message, even to make sure that, our, that we have school, is that we need to do what's the right things to do. And that's don't gather like we have done. Social distance, wear your mask. Uh, let's keep doing that. That'll allow these sports to happen. Um, and then we just all have to work together. I think as this community, I think the fact that Mark, we have, you know, this crew together shows how multidisciplinary the work is going to be needed going forward. And we'll just have to keep doing that as we learn and make sure that children and our athletes are, you know, get what they deserve. Katie. Yeah, I think I, I echo Jason's comment a little bit in the sense that I think we need behavior change in order to to be able to keep moving forward. And that's as a whole, not just as it relates to, to sport. And then I think secondly, we have to have the ability to adapt and change because I, I think we all know the biggest challenge we have with COVID is that we don't know a lot of these things yet and we're continuing to learn. And so I think research is going to be in, incredibly key in, in gathering data to continuing to make informed decisions. Um, I think on the healthcare side of things, we, we have to keep evolving and changing and, and looking at new research and new data every day to, to keep making sure that those decisions and those recommendations that we're putting forward are the most accurate with the information we have available. And then I think our community has to understand that, that we have to keep changing and adapting, but we have, have a lot of behavioral and cultural changes in order to make this effective because if we don't do that. Unfortunately, we're not going to be successful and we're not, we're not going to get a lot of the things that we want like sports so I think that's key, but I, I certainly think it's possible. And I think that with some of those changes, we'll be able to, to have our, some level of sports back. It just may not look like our, our traditional sports. And Andy, I'll let you have the final word. Sure. From a messaging standpoint, my biggest frustration through this whole thing has been this messaging of safety. You know, People keep using the word safe as though there's something we can do to eliminate all risk here. And I don't think that's realistic. Um, I, I think our message should really be in risk mitigation because there's going to be intrinsic risk here that we can't avoid, but we can do things to mitigate those risks, to limit those risks a bit. And so I guess my, my final point is that you know the risk mitigation strategies here aren't fancy. They're not complicated, but they do cost money. You know, we need robust testing um, a, a, as much as possible. We need robust contact tracing. 
We need to make sure we're doing things to limit transmission in our um, playing venues and our athletic facilities, including universal masking and avoiding unnecessary contact and distancing as much as possible. And then finally, we need well-trained athletic trainers on every sideline and every training room to help um, develop relationships with these athletes and identify problems when they arise, including having an AED present so that if they do have a cardiac emergency, they're prepared to deal with it. Another great discussion today. A big thank you to all of my guests, John, Jason, and Katie, and Andy. Please be sure to subscribe to the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast through your favorite podcast streaming platform. Get the show notes with links to things we've referenced to today and find my whole podcast library at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. Follow us on our Facebook page or through Twitter at Peds Sports Pod. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you will join us for future episodes. Find my entire library of episodes at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast.